Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast along with Jim Callis live from Chicago. I'm John Manuel live from Cary, North Cackalack. I want to thank everyone for downloading the podcast this week. You can follow Baseball America on Twitter. That's at twitter.com backslash Baseball America. Jim and I are both going to be in St. Louis on Sunday where I think, Jim, I don't even know that you know this, we're going to tweet the Futures game. Uh, no, actually, I think you do You do know this. I think you have actually brought it to our attention. We're going to, twi- we're going to use Twitter during the Futures game to post updates throughout the game. I'll be on the XM broadcast uh, as I have been for the last, I think, five years now. Uh, live from the from the U.S. dugout. Last year was the World dugout. This year, the U.S. dugout. So, big weekend coming up for us at Baseball America. Our top twenty-five prospect midseason update is live at BA.com. So, uh, an awful lot of stuff, Jim. But uh, today on the podcast, you and I are kind of going back to the future one last time. We haven't wrapped up in podcast form the two thousand nine draft, so we thought we'd do that a little bit. Uh, do you have any any quick futures game thoughts uh, as we look forward to that game? Have you been to a, to a game with the new Bush yet? Not the new Bush. I've, I've been to the old Bush, but not the new Bush. So no, I'm looking forward to. It. I mean, I think the futures game. You know, we, we say this every year. You get to see any of the miners' best prospects and all in one place. You don't get the opportunity to do that very often. And uh, looking forward to it. I also am looking forward to it, and uh, I'm looking forward to this podcast. Looking forward to talking a little draft. We are a month out from the draft, basically, almost exactly. I guess it is exactly a month ago, uh, as we record this, July 9th. June 9th was when the draft uh, ended or started. I'm already so confused. <laughs> June 9th it began and it ended June 11th. Well, let's talk about a couple aspects of the draft, Jim, that are big picture deals. Um, first, you were involved, obviously, in the draft broadcast on MLB Network. I think everyone agrees that uh, it's a good thing for the draft that it was on MLB Network. I think everyone agrees that the production was really well done. I think everybody listening to this podcast probably agrees that we wanted more Jim Callis on the broadcast. But what did you just think of, uh, you know, it's the first time they did it. What did you think of the, the broadcast? And uh, kind of where do you think maybe the draft broadcast kind of, more instead of critiquing the draft, how, what, what would a, a, if Jim Callis were in charge of the draft broadcast, what would it be like? How would it resemble what we did this year and how would it be different? Well, I think MLB Network, I, I, I like the job they did in general uh, this year. You know, I thought they put, you know, more maybe time and effort into it than, than ESPN did, or at least my perception that ESPN did in the two years it was on ESPN. I, I just think they were more excited to do it than ESPN was. I, I think ESPN did more out of an obligation because MLB wanted them to. 
and MLB did it because they wanted to celebrate the draft. I, I, I do think, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the production looked very nice, uh, you know, from what I've seen of it. Uh, I, I think they did just neat graphics, neat flashbacks, and I also thought they did an excellent job. It, there had to be like eight or nine interviews of either players or GMs or, or you know, whoever, you know, so I thought they did a good job of that. I, I do think the one thing I'd like to see more of is, is more analysis. It was more of a I think if you're going to characterize it, I felt like it was more of a, I guess, a celebration of the draft, but it wasn't as much analysis. I don't think you necessarily have to sit there and rip every pick, but, you know, what baseball does, you know, differently than other sports is signability plays a bigger role than ability, and players don't necessarily go in the order they should based on straight talent, and that barely gets acknowledged. And again, I mean, I don't think you have to sit there and say, oh, this team just made a horrible pick. But let's say when the Pirates are taking Tony Sanchez at number four, and we've got him ranked as the 30th best player in the draft, well, there's a reason he's going number four that goes beyond just what he can do on the baseball field. And I just don't think, you know, if I were in charge, I'd like to see that stuff talked about more. So if I'm a fan, I get a better sense of, you know, how good the player is that my team took. Um, because I do think if, you know, and I've heard this from a number of people, both inside the game and just fans, that, the one thing I guess that they had a criticism was it's almost like all 32 first-round picks got heartily endorsed by the four guys sitting at the, at the main table. And there was very, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd think these you know, all 32 guys were good and nobody had a weakness and, and they were all tremendous picks. And, I mean, there obviously were some picks that were better than others. Yeah, and if, if NFL Network can broadcast the NFL draft with a lot more at stake, more money, I mean, it's just, let's face it, it's, the draft in the NFL is, I think, more important to the success of a team there uh, because of how immediately those players contribute than it is in baseball. Uh, if you bonk a draft in the NFL, well, I mean, your team is in, is in trouble. If you bonk a draft in Major League Baseball, you'll have a hiccup in your uh, player development system, but the next year you might be able to make up for it. You might get some faster moving players the next year, that kind of thing. But, uh, I know, John, I, I'll, I'll disagree with you slightly. I mean, I, I do think your, your general point's right, but I do think if you're not a big revenue, te- revenue team, you can mess up the draft in baseball. You look at the Pirates, who have lost 17 years in a row. There's no doubt about that. Been, you know, because it's, it's all, you, you can't afford to go. You're not going to be the Yankees if you're sitting there in Pittsburgh. Neil Huntington's not going to go out and sign Teixeira and Sabathi and A.J. Burnett and turn his team around. I agree. He's got to draft well. So I, I think it's, you know, you don't get as immediate an impact. But you have to do well in the draft. You do. I still think you can mess one up and make up for it the next year more easily than you can in the NFL. But that's that's another podcast. You mentioned the Pirates. Let's talk right now about the Pirates because, honestly, Jim, I think they did mess their draft up to a certain extent, uh, to a very large extent. And I really like uh, Tony Sanchez as a prospect. I love the story. Uh, not exactly a kid from Miami. I mean, uh, from from Boston. Uh, sorry to correct uh, Harold Reynolds a month out here, but a kid from Miami who wasn't really recruited by teams in Florida, uh, not very heavily, winds up going to BC and makes himself a guy. I think that's a great story. And like you said, I think he was a consensus back of the first round supplemental first round pick. But to sign him at number four overall and sign him for a close to slot bonus that's questionable I'm really I don't think that was a good move for uh, Pittsburgh and of the players they've signed so far uh, I'm not seeing anybody who where they're really making up for it with some of the other guys uh, what do you think of their draft Jim and, and that strategy overall 
Well, that, yeah, yeah, you know, the, my, my initial reaction when they took him was, uh, I think it was probably your initial reaction too. I was thrilled for Chris Klein, who used to work for us. No doubt. He was the area scout, and he gets the number four pick in the draft. I thought that was, uh, that was tremendous. And what happened to the Pirates, and we've talked about this before, what happened to the Pirates was, you know, the first three guys in the draft were the best pitcher, the best hitter, and the best athlete in the draft. They went yep. boom, 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 one, two, three. Then the Pirates at four got caught a little bit in between, in which the guys, you know, the, the best talents on the board all had huge price tags out there, as did the three players that went ahead of them, more than what the Pirates wanted to spend. You know, this also comes on the heels of the Pirates last year, you know, basically <laughs> illegally signing Pedro Alvarez after the deadline and having it go to a grievance and become the <laughs> big stink. It, and I think, you know, I mean, I, I've had some teams tell me, I don't know if I quite buy this, that the Pirates were determined to sign a guy quickly without any rancor. You know, whatever. You know, if it's me, give me some rancor. You know, my team's, you know, probably going to have its 17th straight losing season. I'll take some rancor if I can get a better player. But I don't necessarily disagree with the Pirates' strategy on one hand, if you were going to take a guy, you know, take a guy who wasn't necessarily the number four, you know, caliber player in the draft and save money and spend it elsewhere. Um, what they did is they took a guy we had ranked as, I think, the 30th best player in the draft and who probably would have gone, based on all the phone calls we made, to the Mariners at number 27 if he didn't go to the Pirates at four. But then they didn't take a discount. I mean, to me, you probably could have signed him for a million and a half rather than two and a half million picking at four based on where he was going to go. And we've seen other guys. I mean, you look at Drew Storm, who went 10th. You know, he signed for under slot uh, because he went higher than he was going to go otherwise. In any case, um, you know, they did take some – they took a number of guys who are very interesting players. We'll see how many they can sign. Guys like Zach Dotson, a lefty out of Texas. Zach Von Rosenberg, a righty out of Louisiana. Trent Stevenson, a righty out of Arizona. Colton Kane, a lefty out of Texas. And some other guy, you know, Matt Dendecker. Right. We had as a third-round pick they took in the 16th round after he was telling people he wanted a million dollars. We'll see how many of those guys they signed. But but the bottom line is taking Sanchez didn't save them any money to spend on those guys. I mean, I guess it took it saved the money compared to had they taken, say, Tyler Matzik, uh, you know, and spent five or six million dollars or whatever Tyler Matzik's going to sign for. But they really didn't save on slots. So, they, so if they sign those other guys we just talked about, and I think they'll be aggressive and try to, that that's independent of what you spent on Tony Sanchez because you really didn't save money on Tony Sanchez. And so correct. if it's me and I'm going to spend two and a half million at pick number four, and I'm not trying to knock Tony Sanchez either. I mean, the guy's a great defender. You know, again, we've talked. We kind of take the consensus approach and talk to several teams, and everybody raves about his defense. And some guys question the bat. I just think for two and a half million dollars, you could have gotten a better player than Tony Sanchez. I mean, the Pirates were linked to Aaron Crow, and you know, Aaron Crow probably wants four million dollars. But is he going to go back into independent ball for third straight, you know, a second straight year? Right. And, you know, come back in the draft when he's twenty-three and a half? Probably not. You know, they they were linked to Grant Green. You know, is Grant Green going to tell you he's going to sign for two and a half? No, he's not. But you know what? Is Grant Green really going to turn down two and a half or at the end of August? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think he turns down three. You know, they, you know, guys like, you know, they were linked to Bobby Borchering. You know, Bobby Borchering, you probably could have signed for $2 million. And then to be honest, and again, I'm not trying to knock Tony Sanchez, I, I'd rather have Bobby Borchering. Yeah, I you completely know, agree. The, the one thing that's tricky is, you know, we saw this last year when Jason Castro went 10th overall. I mean, it's so hard to find a catcher. But those guys do get overdrafted. So, I mean, I think Sanchez can work it out for the Pirates. 
I just don't think you had to spend two and a half million dollars on him. I, I, to me, he wasn't going to get a million and a half if the Pirates didn't take him, and you could have saved a million. You know, and again, it's easy for me to say sitting here at my desk in in suburban Chicago. I, I just think it, you know, if you're going to spend two and a half, you could have got a better player than Tony Sanchez. And if you were that sold Tony Sanchez, you could have signed him for less than two and a half. I think the biggest, the bigger point all the way around. I agree with pretty much everything you said, but to me. The way that the Pirates stop becoming the Pirates is not by drafting like this. The way the Pirates stop becoming the Pirates and become a better organization, a more successful organization, is taking some risks that are educated risks. But, I mean, like, like you said, I mean, you have to take the best player that you can get for that amount of money. I'm not convinced that Tony Sanchez is the best player you can get for that amount of money. And, I mean, I've talked to too many scouting directors over the years, Jim, who've said when you overdraft a player because of money – and you're really selling your farm system short. And well, I think the I Pirates sold their system short. Yes, and you if did. If you look at the guys where that happened, as opposed to the guys who get paid you know, well over slot because you know, they drop because of signability, you basically you get what you pay for. Yeah, and um, that's, that's where the Pirates are as a franchise right now. That's just, that's just where they are. They're, just, they're not any good. And I, I, don't, I don't like the trades they've made in the last year, year and a half of taking a – you know, taking the one strength of the team, the outfield, and turn it into a deficit. Uh, I don't think Lasting's Millage is going to be a player who helps them turn around. I mean, that, if you can't, if you can't play, if you're not good enough to play on this year's Nationals team, you're just not good enough. He's not going to be part of the solution in Pittsburgh. So I, I just, I'm not impressed by the by the administration so far there in uh, Pittsburgh. Their best move has been hiring Chris Klein. So I really, do, and I really don't see. Anything, if I were a Pirates fan, that would renew my faith in that organization. Who are some teams that we think maybe did it better uh, on, on the, during the draft, uh, or, or, or do you want do you want to even go in that direction, or do you want to maybe talk more about the pace of signing? Because uh, that's kind of where we are right now here, a month out, where 11, first, 11 out of the thirty two first round picks have signed, and we just had a supplemental first rounder signed today, and Stephen Barron with the uh, with the Mariners. Uh, why don't we go in that direction a little bit, Jim? It, Seems like we're kind of in the same pace that we've been at the last couple of years since the deadline was instituted uh, for the 2007 draft. Uh, you know, the mid-August deadline this year pushed back to August 17th. It doesn't seem like that deadline helps anybody uh, sign early. It does not encourage anyone to sign early. Well, it doesn't at all because, and especially you know, the, the slots slashed by 10 percent this year, like they were in 2007. Uh, you know, two years ago, MLB changed, you know, got some of the draft rules changed. You know, the, the two biggies were putting in the signing deadline and, and changing the compensation for unsigned picks where rather than just getting a sandwich pick for an unsigned first-rounder, you get a you get basically the same pick the next year if you don't sign somebody in the first two rounds and a, a third-round sandwich pick if you don't sign a third-rounder. I remember MLB at the time said, uh, you know, felt like, okay, we're, we're – you know, they, to, to use a Seinfeld phrase, you know, they were taking hand back from the agents and players, <laughs> and uh, and they cut the slots ten percent. And I remember, you know, when 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 they were making some, you know, they were making some comments that they you know, they didn't use the phrase "we have hand," but that's essentially what they were saying. I, I even wrote a column and said they're not going to have hand; they're, they're, they're miscalculating hand here. And I, and I believe uh, Frank Cunnelly, who worked for MLB, I think tried to call me in the the BA headquarters there in Durham, and I think talked to Will Lingo. He didn't realize I worked out of Chicago. But anyway, but the problem was is that the agents just need a deadline; they don't care when it is. And the teams, and we're seeing by the way they make their picks, want to sign their top picks. They're not going to take 
risks left and right, uh, even if the compensation's better. And we've all, we've seen this year too a little weakening, where a year ago the Nationals took Aaron Crow with a ninth overall pick, and we thought he was the best right-hander in the draft and a great pick for the Nationals. And I think both the agents and the teams blew that negotiation in a bunch of different ways. He winds up not signing, and the Nationals can say, okay, you know, we get the 10th pick next year. Well, they wound up taking a discount on Drew Storen because they had to make sure they could sign him because you don't get compensation a third time. And I don't think anybody in baseball would turn you on. No knock on Drew Storen, who will probably be up in Washington maybe even by the end of the year. I don't think anybody in baseball would trade you Aaron Crow, would trade you Aaron Crow for Drew Storen. Um, so no the way. compensation doesn't even work out. But anyway, they, they miscalculated then and thought they were going to be able to cut bonuses. And what happened in the first round was, was just like this year where you, know, you have about a dozen guys signed within the first month, and then you had about a half dozen guys who held out for the previous year's full slot, and they all got it at the end. And then you had another dozen guys who were going to be well over slot and got well over slot money at the end. And, and we're, we're in the same pattern this year where you know, Jared Mitchell signed last night, so that gives us 12 guys in the first round, you know, one of whom got over slot, and that was Geo Meyer to the Astros at $26,000 over slot. And even that is a messed up situation. We don't need to go too much into detail, but, I mean, that's a crazy yeah, situation in of itself. Because he's, cause a lot of guys will get their bonus paid in, in two installments, you know, splitting it up over this year, and then you know, he'll get paid. <laughs> Meyer will get the rest of his bonus, uh, I think, on January 1st next year, you know, for tax purposes. And so MLB is actually uh, discounting it. Even though they've never discounted a bonus that's paid out within a year before, they're discounting it to claim internally that that one's under slot. But anyway, you know, so we have 12 guys who've signed for essentially slot bonuses, and I think we'll see maybe one or two, you know, three more over the next, you know, two, three weeks. And then, you know, probably a couple days before the August 17th deadline, we'll have, you know, you know six or seven guys signed for last year's slot bonus. And then we'll have, you know, the other eight or nine guys rolling out for big money. We'll all get paid on August 17th. And I guess that's my real question. Out of those eight or nine guys, which really that package is some of your out-of-the-box Boris Corp clients, Strasburg, obviously, some, uh, Dustin Ackley, um, your, the four big high school pitchers, uh, Miller, Matzik, uh, Jacob Turner, and I'm blanking on one, Matt Perk. Right. Um, and then there, uh, who else is going to be uh, out of all those those eight to ten guys we're talking about? How many of those guys you think are going to be who who might be this year's Garrett Cole, the first rounder who ends up not signing? Do you think all those guys wind up getting signed, or do you think there's going to be another Garrett Cole in this draft, or another guy like a John Mayberry Jr. back in 2002 who doesn't sign? Uh, first rounders not signing these days is pretty rare. Uh, you think any of those guys have a chance to to fall through the cracks? I mean, you can never say that they won't. I mean, I still would bet they all sign. I mean, last year, the two guys who didn't sign were, you know, Crow. I went back and looked, and I think, I forget how many guys there are this decade. I think it's been six or seven guys this decade who haven't signed out of the first round. And in three of them, it was, the you know, at least one side totally botched the negotiations. And then in the other ones, it was... Uh, it was, you know, Mayberry was a guy who just wasn't signable. Right. Uh, you know, Jeremy Sowers wasn't signable. Uh, Alan Horn with the Indians was, uh, I'm not sure how signable he was, but he wound up not being signable. And then Gary Cole, at the la- you know, as the summer went on, you know, and again, you can't sign guys for over slot. Aaron Gary Cole decided 
he wanted to, you know, go to UCLA. You know, the three guys who got messed up negotiation-wise were Matt Harrington, Wade Towns, and Aaron Crow. So, I, I, I don't see that happening. I mean, I think that the guys to watch this year, probably the three guys to watch, are, are one, Strasburg at the top because Scott Boris is reportedly seeking $50 million. Um, you know, I think Scott's going to try to play the Japan card and take him to Japan somehow and make him a free agent, although I don't really see what a Japanese team would have to gain from doing that. Right. Um, you know, you know, except inviting MLB teams to come in and sign away all of their amateur players. Do you think? Um, do you think Aroldis Chapman has will have any and his possible signing the Cuban defector? Will that have any possible ramifications for Strasburg? You think? I'd say yes and no. I mean, in Boris's mind, yes, and I don't disagree with Scott's point that. I mean, to me, if I had to pick between those two guys, I would take Strasburg. Me too. I don't know who you would take. Jim. No, I would take. take I would take Strasburg. He's a lot more polished. Right. You know, you, you could, against, yeah. You, know, you have a better track record. I think he's more polished, you know, like you said. So anyway, but because one guy is Cuban, he's probably going to get 60 or 50 or 60 or $70 million. I really don't think he'll get that much. I mean, I, then, Aroldis you know, Chapman's I, outstanding, but, I mean, he's not, uh, as much as everyone wants to talk about him, he's not as good a prospect as Jose Contreras was. Now, he is younger and he's left-handed, and that was six, seven years ago, but he's not as good as Con- Contreras at the time wasn't just considered maybe one of the better prospects in the game. People thought he was one of the top five pitchers in the world. So I mean, he got four years, $32 million. That would be where I would come in for Aroldis Chapman. If a team wants to go higher than that, they could be my guest. But the Cuban pitcher track record would make me very hesitant to go anywhere above Contreras. That's just Oh, well, I don't disagree with opinion. that, but I'll take the over just because I think you'll have teams desperate for him. They have money to spend. And I think the economy whatever. will anyway, – I'll take the under. I don't – Getting back to Strasburg, I don't disagree with Scott's point that if Chapman gets that, you know, well, what's the difference between him and Strasburg? Strasburg's better, but is more restricted. But that said, if I'm the Nationals, I'm still saying, well, I'm sorry, your guy's not a free agent. I, I you know, it's apples and oranges. Them's the rules. Chapman gets forty million or whatever from the Yankees doesn't mean I have to pay Strasburg more. I, so I, I would I come back and goes, say that I think what it does more than anything is it points out the inequities between the international system and the draft system, which I really think are going to be come to a head with the next CBA. I think those are going to be one of the most important issues, if not the most important, in the next CBA. But getting back to whether he signs, I still think at the end of the summer, you, you offer him the smallest amount you think he can't possibly turn down. You know, the record right now is $10.5 million for a big league deal out of the draft. I think you offer him 15, maybe you offer him 20. I just can't see him turn that down. So I think Strasburg will sign. I think the biggest risk... From the high school side, is probably Tyler Matzik. Most of the elite pitchers are the signability guys who dropped because of their price tag. Went to teams that you could just look at. They have a track record of spending. The Rockies don't have that track record of spending. I think they took Matzik at 11 for a couple reasons. One, he was by far the best player on the board, and they figured they, figured they couldn't pass him up. Two, they, they had the pick number 32 and pick number 34, so it's like two extra first-rounders. If, if they make an effort to sign Matzik and they don't sign him, it doesn't kill their draft, and you know we'll see. You know, Matt Six representatives. You know, right before the draft, it word came out that he wanted unprecedented money, which would everybody's interpreting is more than the seven million dollar high school record for Josh Beckett and Rick Porcello. And it just comes down, you know, I don't think he'll necessarily get seven, but if he's set on five, he might not get five. So I think he's probably your biggest threat not to sign. And then the the other wild card out there is just Kyle Gibson, who the Twins took at 22, who would have gone, you know, at least 10, 12 picks higher than that had he not come down with a stress fracture in his forearm right before the draft. He's supposed to be able to throw at the end of July, beginning of August. 
and show what he can do. But if for some reason Kyle Gibson is not fully healthy by August 17th, then I think there's a chance he doesn't sign. I guess my other question, Mark Amir, I, I, the, the third person I thought you would say, because I definitely agree with you on Matzik and selfishly as a fan of college baseball, I want, and, and as a fan of George Horton, uh, an absolutely no offense to the Rockies, but I kind of want Tyler Matzik to go to Oregon and to turn that program into a, into a factor. That would just be awesome. <laughs> I'm just, I'm getting, I'm smiling just thinking about that. And that's no offense to the Rockies, but uh, I thought the third guy you would say would be Grant Green. Now, I guess I'm curious what you think Oakland will do with Grant Green because his performance in the Cape in 2008 and his performance in the spring with Southern California were so disparate where he was this Longoria Tulowitzki hybrid last summer and this spring he was a guy where some guys almost saw him as better suited to moving to second base and he had zero power. He hit one home run in Pac-10 play, four on the year. I mean, uh, that disconnect... And then you throw in the Boris Corporation client. You throw in Oakland. We know that this is not a big market team. This is a team that is kind of desperate for some big league hitting help. I mean, what do you think the chances are of Grant Green not signing there in Oakland? I think he signs because here's the thing. I think, one, you know, Oakland spent a lot of money on Michael Anola last year. They spent a million dollars to get Brett Hunter in the seventh round. Um, I, you know, they don't have much of a big league payroll. I think they will spend – to sign him, I don't think they're necessarily going to hand Scott Boris a blank check, but I don't think that I, I think they were rumored to be strong on Green all spring, and I think they took him with full intention of signing him. And again, I think they wish know, they'd gotten Matzik. To be honest with you, I think they were hot on Matzik, and I think see, uh, I, don't, I don't know about that either, though, John, because I think Grant Green. I don't think as a college junior he turns down three million. I think Tyler Matzik might turn down three million. So that's, I, I think, that's possible. My guess is on green is they already know what it's going to cost. They're fine with paying it, but MLB is just not going to prove it because it's well over slot, and he'll wind up signing, you know, August seventeenth. You know, what I, you know, the other thing you could do with him too, you could give him a big league contract and give him a smaller bonus and more guaranteed money spread out over four or five years, and you know, then MLB's happy because he comes in closer to slot, um, and he still makes a. A good deal of money. So I, I do think Grant Green will sign. Oakland has been more aggressive trying to get players, uh, you know, you know, spending on the amateur level, and, and I do think they will sign him. On one other thing on this subject, um, and then we should probably wrap up, the, uh, it's a Baseball America podcast. He's Jim Callis. I'm John Manuel. Uh, Jim, one thing I heard, we'll go back to the hand theme. If anybody ha- If anything would ever give MLB hand, it would be that potentially in 2012, when a guy like, say, a Tyler Matzik is a college junior, by then the new CBA is negotiated when? 2011? It expires after 2000. So, so, potentially, so potentially you could go back into the draft in 2012 with draft hard slots in the draft uh, and no flexibility for a guy like a Tyler Matzik to go above slot and get a big-time precedent-setting deal uh, maybe no possibility to get $3 million, which might be test, just hypothetically test the final offer that the Rockies make. $3 million bonus, take it or leave it. Um, is, does that give MLB hand? That would seem to give MLB some hand if if the player and the agent you know, really thought that MLB would, you know, with three years' time, actually deliver on that and actually get its act together in terms of the draft and international bonuses and really uh, organize those things. Do you think that's enough hand to get someone like Matzik to, or those kind of those prep pitchers to sign? I think it's a good point.
point. And I think if I were a team, I'd be letting the agent know about that. I, I think from the agent and player side, I'm not buying it. Because as you, the way you put it, you put it aptly, they have to get their act together. You, you, the MLB and the, and the union have never been able to agree on draft changes over the years. Uh, so there's no telling what that system could be. Um, you know, it, it's possible you could have a straight draft slotting system, but have an exception. You know, right? You know, where you could sign guys to major league contracts, in, in which case you could get more than three million. If I'm Tyler Matzik's agent. I'm looking at it like some teams thought my guy was the second-best player in this draft right now behind Steven Strasburg, that, you know, if Tyler Matzik goes to Oregon, he'll be the best player. I mean, if he goes to school right now, I mean, no, a lot can happen. He'll be the favorite to go number one overall in 2012 unless, you know, Bryce Harper's kicking around at some four-year college now right, after two right. years in junior college. But, uh, but, no, I mean, Matzik would be the number one pick. You, you, you would at least think that if you're Tyler Matzik and his agent. In which case, you'd probably get more than $3 million. So Don't, don't forget I mean, I that, Lance. I think that's an interesting thing to consider with all this. I do think it's an interesting thing to consider, but you just have no idea of knowing exactly what that system is. And right now, I mean, $3 million is probably the you know the top three players in the draft. Their slots are worth $3 million or more. If they you know have some kind of inflation, you will probably be the top four slots in 2012. If I'm Tyler Madsick, I might feel like, well, you know what? I'll be one of those top four guys. Good point. And don't, don't forget that uh... – Lance McCullers Jr. is in the class of 2012, so you know if I had a pick in the top uh, few picks, I'd be taking Lance McCullers Jr. So uh, just can't you go. just gonna you got to factor that into the class of 2012. That's the only class of 2012 name I know. Jim, we have a couple of quick emails we're going to get to, unless you need to run. No, that's fine. Podcast at dot com is the email address, and uh, they're related to our top 25, but uh, one of them. So I'll answer part of the one since I was more involved in that, and then you can answer if you want to, and then you sure. can get another part that you can definitely answer. Uh, Joe LaCates, of course, says, awesome job on the top 25 just released. Uh, how close was Brett Lowry to at least getting an honorable mention? He was close. Uh, he was definitely considered. It's not that he's gone backward or anything like that. He's still in the middle of the diamond. I do think he can stay at second base. Uh, just some other guys maybe came up. He was very, very much on the border in that 26 to 50 range. Uh, thoughts on Pedro Alvarez right now. I'm a believer in that guy, but the K's are alarming. I see he got some attention. Alvarez was 26 to 90 in gym. I really thought that Alvarez would make the top 25, but the scouts I talked to had some legitimate concerns. And to me, the thing that set him apart coming into last year, I didn't think he'd be a gold glove third baseman, but I thought he had a shot to stay at third base for the first five years of his pro career, if not more. But then he showed up fat. And I still hear questions about the body. I talked to two scouts who both knocked the guy for not being in the best condition, and they both think he's moving to first base. And that's why he dropped out of 25 for me. Uh, you have any thoughts on Alvarez? I still think his bat will you know, be, be an exceptional bat. And I had him in my, my personal top 25, but as much as I've been a Pedro Alvarez backer, not that I've been the only one. Ever since Aaron Fitt and I were at the Minute Maid Classic or whatever they called it, the tournament at, uh, right. at Minute Maid Field now, the last, it was two years ago, his draft year, uh, I, you know, I watched him at third base. I, I didn't think he could play third base just watching him three games, you know, down the road, just because he doesn't have a whole lot of lateral range. And if he's in worse shape, I think you can, you can write that off right there. I mean, I, I, I guess the thing that bothers me is if he's not in good shape, that, that would bother me immensely because here's a guy who signed for $6 million. That's what bothers me. <laughs> How's he not in shape? I mean, I can, I can see where... He doesn't okay, even have kids. 
But he's an inst- there you go. When he's in instructional league last fall, okay, you know, he wasn't playing during the summer. You might get a little bit slack. You know, I, I could see that. I, I could see where you might be. Uh, but how are you not in shape now? I, I don't think that's a good sign. And if, you know, we had a database, I, I guess when I think of, of Boris clients not being in shape, the, the two guys I think of were Mark Pilek who was a first-round pick of the Cubs, came to his first spring training, not in very good shape at all. Never recovered. Terrible. And then Mike Rozier, a around Boris guy who the Red Sox gave huge money to, and a lot of teams are like, what's up with that? He showed up out of shape for his first two spring trainings. Um, yeah, he's a, I'm he, not blaming Boris, but I'm just saying that it's like, and I'm sure you know there's, there's more than two players in the history of baseball who have showed up unprepared for their first professional spring training. But, but those are two guys who jumped to mind, and I just think it, it makes me question the makeup a little bit. You know, I what, agree. What's Pedro doing? I mean, if he was bothered by tendonitis and, and was a little overweight in the instructional league, well, why wasn't he, you know, working hard in the offseason? And, you know, I would think, you know, when you're playing, uh, you know, minor league ball, it's pretty hot out there during the summer. How are you out of shape now? It seems like you should be sweating the pounds off. So I, I, I agree. I, I still very much believe in the bat, but am very – very disappointed, and you can hear my, my dog in the background, also very disappointed that <laughs> Pedro's not in better shape. Well, uh, la- Joe's last question, Strasburg becomes number one August 18th? I would say yes. Jim, would you say yes? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think, I think so. the only way Strasburg isn't number one on next year's top 100 is, I guess, well, I guess there's two ways. One, if he doesn't sign, and two, if uh, if somehow, and this won't happen, he pitches 50 innings in the big leagues between... August 18th and the end of the season. Right. Stranger things have happened. I mean, uh, the Nationals are the Nationals. They're slightly desperate. Um, one last question, then we'll wrap up the podcast. Tom in Santiago asks, why Lars Anderson is rated as a much better prospect than Kyle Blanks, even though Blanks at the same age and league has had better numbers? Is it because Anderson was higher rated coming out of high school or because he looks more like a major league player than Blanks? I would say, Tom, the reasons I've always differentiated those two guys is I do think Kyle Blanks has quite a feel for hitting. And he is a big guy. I've never heard huge reports on the on the raw power. He's not as athletic as Lars Anderson, even though he's athletic for his size. He's not a good defender at first base. He's not as smooth. And I think that Lars Anderson will match him with his feel for hitting. I actually talked to Lars Anderson's manager today, Arnie Baylor. And we'll have something on BaseballAmerica.com about it tomorrow. And Arnie, really, the, you dig in the numbers on Lars Anderson. His strikeout rate's actually lower this year than it was last year in Double A. Arnie basically said he's a victim, if you want to use that word, of just being Lars Anderson now. He's getting a lot of attention. He's been on the cover of Baseball America. Opposing managers last year would come up to Arnie after a game and say, hey, who's that guy? This year they come into the series game-planning Lars Anderson. When it's after the sixth inning in a, in a minor league game, they have a lefty in the bullpen, they go to him. So Lars Anderson, really, his numbers, it's a 787 OPS as a 21-year-old against right-handed pitching in the Eastern League. It's against left-handers that he's really struggling. It's a 661 OPS. You know, so he's a 21-year-old hitter struggling with same-side pitchers and a lot of breaking balls. I mean, I don't think that really makes him unusual. It has made me temper my enthusiasm a bit on Lars Anderson. He just missed our top 25. doesn't mean that he won't be in the top 25 at the end of the year. Uh, I just want to see some adjustments, basically. But, uh, but comparing him to Kyle Blanks, he is more conventional. But I, I think we like Kyle Blanks, Jim. I don't think we've ever hated on Kyle Blanks. I, I think we like him. I just don't think we consider him potentially elite. And I think we consider Lars Anderson potentially elite. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a, I get that email, too. I think the same guy emailed me. And I, you, there must be, like, Potter's message boards because you get some of these emails. 
I mean, Lars Anderson hits left-handed. Kyle Blanks hits right-handed. More value, Kyle correct. Kyle Blanks is maxed out physically. Lars Anderson isn't. Uh, I think, you know, just talking to scouts, they like Kyle Blanks. They like Lars Anderson's swing and power potential more. And, you know, I, 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 I've had that same email written by different people. Oh, you know, Blank, even though Blanks is a year older, you know, his numbers at the same levels are better than Lars Anderson. Well, outside of Lancaster, Lars Anderson has played mostly in pitchers' leagues, and Kyle Blanks has played mostly in hitters' leagues. It's not just, you know, it's not comparing apples. the stats. So, I mean, again, I think you hit the nail on the head. We like Kyle Blanks. We like Lars Anderson more. I've never, and I've talked to a lot of scouts about those guys, you know, and I've asked that question because I keep getting these emails over and over again from Padres fans. I've never, literally never, had a single scout tell me I like Kyle Blanks more than Lars Anderson. I've yeah. had probably close to a dozen guys tell me, oh, no, I'd take Lars Anderson. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, nothing wrong with Kyle Blanks. I just don't think he's good as Lars Anderson. And I think, you know, the explanation you gave is very good. I mean, he's a 21-year-old in double-A who every, you know, I mean, again, if you're facing that team, you know, I know Josh Reddick's been on that team. But, again, I mean, who's the most hyped guy on that team by far? It's Lars Anderson. And you're not letting that guy beat you. You know, and as much as you play matchups in the minor leagues, which is a lot less than you do in the major leagues, you know, if it's late innings of a close game, you're going to bring in a tough lefty to face Lars Anderson because it's Lars Anderson. Those guys have to learn, too. That's where minor league relief left-handers learn to be big league situational lefties. There's no doubt about it. So, uh, great uh, thanks for the emails. Those are podcasts at BaseballAmerica.com. Obviously, you can follow us at BaseballAmerica.com. You can follow – well, not follow us. You can read all this at BaseballAmerica.com. You can follow us at Twitter.com backslash BaseballAmerica. And, Jim, it will be a pleasure to do one of these from St. Louis – uh, with you at the Futures game, uh, where you, uh, my Ben Badler, uh, myself, <laughs> I don't know where my voice wow. went. I don't know where my voice went. I might be re-recording that. There, so. You, Ben Badler, and I will all be there covering it for BaseballAmerica.com. That's what I tried to say. and I was trying to use my low talker voice to not uh, blow up the podcast, and I just failed miserably. So uh, so we'll see you Sunday, Jim, I guess. Or I'll actually probably see you Saturday. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, John. Okay, for Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Baseball America podcast. Until next time, so long, everybody. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.